0: Unforgettable and deeply moving was the scene at Mount Sinai when God proclaimed His eternal law to the people of Israel. Young and old, including all the leaders of Israel, stood trembling and drew back in holy awe. Never before and never since has God spoken like He did at Mount Sinai. Only the voice of God as it be heard upon Jesus' return on the clouds of heaven and earth will match this majesty of God. But why did God choose to display himself to his redeemed people, Israel, in this moving manner? He never has done anything without a purpose, and certainly his purpose then must have significance for us today. Welcome
1: again, dear friends. Today's lecture is on the law at Mount Sinai. And the best way to capture the setting of it is to listen first to what Moses describes in Exodus 19, particularly verse 16 and 18, when he describes the incredible scene that the Lord displayed on the top of the mountain. There were in that morning thunders and lightning, she writes, a thick cloud, Surrounded the mountain top. The voice of the trumpet became exceeding loud. So that the people in the camp trembled. And as the people stood there at the very edge of the mountain. The whole mountain is on smoke. Because the Lord descended in fire. And in that context. They stand there looking at this incredible, majestic display. The voice of God speaks. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The lawgiver speaks. The words that he later literally carved into stones, and even though we have together searched out the lawgiver's character and have seen that he is love, devotional, sincere, pure, it is noteworthy that God comes on this mountain to give his law in a majestic display that is so awe inspiring that even Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake, as Hebrews 12, verse 21 informs us. Seems to be so opposite of what God's nature is loving, or love rather. It seems so opposite of the nature and the life and the gentleness of Jesus who fulfilled the law. Why then did God deliver? his command to love him above all and our neighbor as ourselves, in such a fear-inspiring and ear-deafening manner. That's the question that in this lecture we need to think about together. So let us first consider the setting in the first observation of how the Ten Commandments are given. And second, let's think a little deeper about the reasons why God proclaimed the Ten Commandments in this manner. So what is the setting in which the Lord brought the Ten Commandments? Well, literally, friends, no event has been so majestic as the giving of the law of God on Mount Sinai God never spake before as he did then. And we will never hear his voice in that majestic power until the day that Jesus returns on the clouds of heaven. Moses himself recalled 40 years later in Deuteronomy that it was a unique event. He says, For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire, as we have and lived. So let's consider the context of this majestic event. The setting is first of all a gracious setting, secondly a covenantal setting, and thirdly a solemn setting. Let's begin with the first one, a gracious setting. That seems to be a rather startling observation. Gracious? Yes. The Ten Commandments are framed in the context of grace. Exodus 20 is preceded by Exodus 1 through 19. And in those chapters we have the history of God's gracious redemption of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Back in Exodus 4, God speaks to Moses through the burning bush and he says, Israel is my son. Even my firstborn is my adopted son. That's only grace. That's based on no other thing but grace. Moses reminded Israel of that repeatedly, particularly 40 years later in Deuteronomy 7. He says, Don't forget, the Lord did not set his love upon you nor chose you because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people, picked you up only out of grace. In Exodus 19, as you notice, as you read the chapter, he compared himself to that eagle carrying her fledgings. So God says, you have seen how I bear you as an eagle's wings and brought you unto myself. It was a graciousness. I brought you unto myself. It was important, therefore, that Israel would never forget this gracious setting, And therefore God begins the Ten Commandments with this beautiful preamble. The introduction speaks about His omnipotent grace whereby he delivered them. I am the Lord thy God that brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, that's not only important for Israel to hear, that's important for us to hear today, who have been saved by God's delivering grace from our spiritual bondage. Also, we are to remember it was grace and grace alone, as John Newton so beautifully captured in his well-known song, Amazing Grace, that saved a wretch like me. So, friends, For us, it is extremely important when we look at the Ten Commandments that we never divorce them from this gracious setting. The Ten Commandments are not a restatement of the covenant of works. It is not like God spoke to Adam and Eve, do this and you shall live. No, God says it's because you live and because I redeemed you, therefore keep my commandments so that the relationship, the life we have together, may flourish, may deepen, may endure as well. So secondly, it was a covenantal setting. All what the Lord has done with Israel was covenantal. Exodus 2 ends with the words, when God hears the Israelites groaning, in the Egyptian bondage. And then it says, And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. Later on, Moses recalls this again in Deuteronomy 7, 8. After all that took place in Egypt, he says it was because, quote, He would Keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, therefore God brought you out of Egypt. Covenantal setting. A covenant is a special and a personal relationship in which two parties bind themselves together with promises, and vows to one another. Think of your marriage covenant. Each party makes obviously the solemn promise and accepts the responsibilities and the conditions that belong to the relationship or to the covenant. God has always dealt with mankind in a covenantal way. In Adam and Eve, as we've seen, it was the covenant of works. Based on their obedience would the relationship flourish and deepen. So is God's relationship with Israel based on a covenantal grace relationship. When God in Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6, approached Israel, notice that he seeks their consent to the covenant which he already initiated with them. Listen to these words. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, Then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all the people. For all the earth is mine. Ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And all the people readily respond. All that the Lord has spoken, we shall do. They meant it sincerely until three days later when they realized how this holy God is so far removed from them. There's something very unique about this covenant, this grace covenant between God and His people Israel. It's unequal. It's a holy God is in covenant with an unholy people. That's the riches of the gospel. The people felt instantly how impossible this relationship is. It's not on equal footing. They felt this. In Exodus 20 verse 18 we read seeing the thunder and the lightning and hearing the noise of the trumpet they stood back and they trembled exceedingly and asked Moses the Lord would no more speak with them but with him instead. Immediately God answered this and revealed to Moses the first elementary revelation of the tabernacle in a very crude altar that Moses was commanded to make. Now the third thing about the covenant, it is one-sided. It is one-sided in the establishment as well as in the execution. God initiated the covenant. God sovereignly defines the rules of the relationship in this covenant. God proves to be the faithful party in this covenant. Israel's history is a continued story of spiritual adultery and unfaithfulness. But God never broke his covenant with Israel, so one-sided. And so the third thing about this covenant, it's grace-based, instead of works-based. That doesn't mean that God doesn't require obedience, of course. But the obedience of us is not the basis of the covenant. God promised on his own grace to be their covenant God forever, even till today. Romans 11, verse 28 says that the Jews remained beloved for the Father's sake. So friends, to wrap this up, let us keep in mind that when we look at Exodus 19 and 20, the Lord did not initiate his covenant relationship with Israel. He only formally confirmed it or enshrined it in the Ten Commandments. And the preamble that we already looked at reflects that, as well as the repeated statement throughout the Ten Commandments, the Lord thy God. In the version of Deuteronomy 5, you'll notice that it's repeated nine times. God stresses it. I am the Lord, your God. Relationship. Now, let's ponder for a moment what that now all means to us. We're no more Mount Horeb. We are no Israelites or Jews, perhaps. We are the origin Gentiles. What significance does all this have for us the new testament people of god is god really speaking to us in the same way as he spoke to his people gathered at mount sinai the answer is emphatically yes already in deuteronomy 5 which is 40 years later with mostly a new generation of people standing at the audience of moses many weren't even born When God came on Mount Sinai, Moses said, The Lord made this covenant not with your fathers, but with us here alive this day. So, fast forward, the Apostle Paul and Peter draw the line of God's covenant from Abraham to the New Testament church in some sweeping statements. Galatians 3, 29. What does Paul call the Galatians? Gentiles of origin. Not any Jewish blood in them. He calls them Abraham's seed. Here it is. Verse 29 of chapter 3. And if ye be Christ, then you're Abraham's seed. And you're heirs according to the promise. According to the covenant. So whether you're a Jew or a Greek, bond or free, Male or female, if in Christ we are Abraham's seed. In chapter 428, he repeats it again, except then he calls the Galatian believers born of heathen parents. Now we brethren, as Isaac was, we are the children of promise. Romans eleven, the apostle Paul uses a different picture compares Israel of old to the root, the stem. And the New Testament church, the Gentile believers, are like branches grafted into that stem. The New Testament church didn't replace the Old Testament church. The New Testament church is the expansion of the Old Testament church, as God predicted in many prophecies, even psalms in the Old Testament already. And all this is all in line with what the Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, filled and moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter takes the line of the Old Testament prophets and he extends it forward to the worldwide church today in these words, for the promise is unto you, standing in front of him, and to your children, perhaps many of them standing there too, and unto all that are far off, to whom they have to still go to preach, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And you notice he draws the line from Abraham onward to the New Testament church. Therefore, friends, within the New Testament church, the same Jehovah God is at work, that was at work in the Old Testament church, gathering his elect from that church then, from the worldwide church today. And that means that each time that you and I today hear the preamble of the Ten Commandments, we are to remind ourselves, as Israel were to remind ourselves of what God did. They were delivered out of the Egyptian bondage. We have been delivered out of the spiritual bondage. Once we were dead in trespasses and sin, in the bondage to sin and Satan. And Paul exhorted the Redeemers never to forget where they once were, like Ephesians 2 9, where he writes, Wherefore remember, recall it, don't forget that ye, at that time, in times past, were Gentiles in the flesh. At that time, you were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Jews and Gentile church, merged together as one now can you now yourself make the inevitable conclusion if it is the same covenant if we participate in a similar deliverance even greater deliverance then the moral law must also have the same place in the life of god's redeemed as it had for Israel. Today it is not and never will be the way to life anymore, but it still is the way of life to preserve, to nurture, to deepen the relationship with God. And that briefly brings me to the last observation. It was a very solemn setting. The day on Mount Sinai, came with the most extraordinary revelation God has ever made. Psalm sixty eight seventeen states about that day the chariots of God are twenty thousands, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them as in Sinai, in the holy place. Chief among all these angels was God Himself, presented himself clearly in the most awe inspiring. Majesty the world had ever seen until that day. No part of Scripture, friends, has ever been uttered than the Mount Sinai Ten Commandments. Never did people ever hear the voice of God speak, out of the midst of fire, as Israel has heard then, as, Mo- as Moses says in Deuteronomy 4:33. God talked with you face to face in the mount, out of the midst of fire, he says in Deuteronomy 5, 4, 4, And no other part of Scripture has ever been written like the Ten Commandments. With his own finger, God later on wrote it in the tables of stone and gave him to Moses. So then, let us conclude with this question. What is now the reason that God proclaimed the Ten Commandments in such great majesty. There are three reasons. But first, think for a moment with me. If God was and is this God of love, and if the law are the reflection of his most holy and lovely nature, why did he make himself feel so unapproachable when he displayed himself in this fire in this incredible glory and majesty that made everybody fear and quake. Death penalty would be even on animals that innocently transpassed that boundary mark. Why would God state this lovely law in such negative tones? Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. There are three reasons. First, God is now dealing with sinners. Even though redeemed from Egypt and even though in covenant with them, the people are standing there in front of him on Mount Sinai are sinners. They have a distorted view of God. They have a distorted view of themselves still. Their thoughts of God, way too low. Their thoughts of themselves, way too high. And therefore God needs to display himself in His very glorious majesty. Later on, God needed to charge Israel. When he has a controversy with them, he says, This thou thought that I was altogether like as you. You put me on the same level. But so am I, I am not. And therefore, God indeed may display himself, friends, that the familiarity in which he comes near to us and dwells among us does not lead to a contempt. Of the great majesty and glory that we ought to display to Him. And Hebrews 12 reiterates that God is a consuming fire, let us therefore come before Him with reverence and godly fear. Therefore, Jesus teaches us in the disciples' prayer First petition, Our Father, which art in heaven. The distance, the closeness, Our Father. So the second reason that God is so majestic in this address is that he is addressing his people in a very dangerous, tempting, broken world. Many forces are standing around Israel here that are seeking to destroy the beauty of their spiritual merits. And therefore God needed to expound the law in such a forceful manner, just like a parent speaking to a young child who has no idea about the dangers around him, who doesn't see it, what is so dangerous. And so as a parent we say, now don't go across that fence. Don't go through that gate. Don't go with strangers. Don't accept their gifts. Now, that is not negative, but that is forceful because of the condition of the child. And so God also as a caring parent phrases the Ten Commandments in that manner. And the third reason for this impressive presentation of God's high standard is, as we already saw, to use the law as a schoolmaster, to bring them to Jesus Christ. Instantly, the people seeing this and hearing God speak feel this is is not safe to listen and to speak and to be near to God. It says and the people saw it, they removed, they stood afar off and they pleaded with Moses, speak thou with us and we will hear. But let not God speak with us lest we die. That was not a negative response. That was a good response. Deuteronomy 18, the Lord revealed to Moses this. The Lord said, they have well spoken that which they have spoken back then at Mount Sinai. And he promises them to raise up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto them. And we see Jesus Christ later, approachable, gentle, not lifting up his voice loudly, scaring them, luring them, drawing them. You see, that's what they felt the need for, And that's why God also in this presentation displayed himself in that majesty to make them feel the need for the mediator. Friends, having come now to the foot of the Mount Sinai, it's time for us to begin to listen to the Ten Commandments, one after the other. And in the series of lectures that are coming now, I hope to take you to each of the commandments in one lecture to look, to listen, to ponder what is the will of Jehovah so that the relationship between him and his people will remain beautiful, glorious, lovely, close, satisfying, enjoyable. And what those specifics of the will of God are, we will look at in our next lectures. So may God bless all we have learned so far and multiplied many faults. Thank you.
0: We hope your understanding and appreciation for God's law has been deepened by what we have considered in this lecture. Join Pastor Arnold Vergunz next time as we further explore God's glory as revealed in His law. The next subject will be the First Commandment.